Good morning. Good morning. Man, that sounded good. It's good. Well, for our, for our time of confession this morning, I ask you to take your Bible and turn to Hosea. Book of Hosea. I know what you're saying. That's not 1 John 1, 9. It's okay. Yes, children are dismissed. Book of Hosea, chapter 14. I would like you to turn there because I'd like you to have it in front of you. If anyone needs a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll get you one. Everybody good? Bible-wise? Corey is ready to serve in the back. Anybody? No? Everybody has their Bible. Okay. Excellent. Thank you, Corey. I appreciate it. Hosea 14. I'm listening for the rustle of pages to die down. It's good, though. I like it. I like it much better than click, 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 click. It's good. So, Look at verse 1. It says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity. And receive us graciously, that we may present the fruit of our lips. Let's stop right there for a second. How many people are familiar with the book of Hosea? Okay. What's the thing that we normally know about it? He was called to marry a strange woman, was he not? And to have children with her. And his life was to serve as a representation of Israel's constant unfaithfulness to a God who was reaching out his hand continually to love them unconditionally. What I like about this verse here, or these, this passage here, is that the command is clear. It's not that Israel was in danger of losing their relationship with God because God had made unconditional promises to them that secured that relationship. Much like God has made unconditional promises to you and I that secures our relationship. If we believe in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. Period. That's a promise. If God doesn't keep that promise, he's not worth serving. However, if he does keep that promise, then it should cause all of us to perk up a little quickly and pay attention to everything that he has to say. But notice what he tells them about their fellowship. Return, O Israel... To Yahweh, your covenant-keeping God, the only God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. In other words, they have a personal responsibility for their ongoing sin. It's not God's fault. It's their fault. One of the greatest concerns I have about going over 1 John 1.9 every Sunday is that it becomes routine and dull to those who hear. And that is dangerous. Because if that's the case, then callousness is set in in the heart. And the only way to get rid of it is to cry out to God in confession. And notice that he makes that particular here, that particular point. Verse 2, take words with you. I thought, what in the world does that mean? Do I need to get out a bag and fill them with words and take them? Well, that's a a wooden-headed literalist approach, is it not? Take words with you and return to the Lord where you should be. And notice what it says. He follows it up. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. 
confess your sin before the Lord and ask of him to receive you again as his gracious manner is. Now, is that because you lost your salvation? No, it's because by sin we walk away from God. Notice he says that we may present the fruit of our lips. Let me ask you a question. If you had the opportunity to present your current life to God this morning, what would that presentation look like? Would it be one of worship? Or would it be one of inexcusable shame? And the reason why the shame would be inexcusable is because we know the truth and are not doing it. That is what is dangerous. That is what equals up to the mask that makes up a lot of American Christianity. I'm fine. Everything's going great. Oh, preacher, good sermon. I appreciate that, but let me encourage you. Don't ever tell me good sermon, ever. Ever. And it's not that I don't appreciate it, but it's that that's not what I'm concerned with. I want to know what God is doing in your heart. And if you are able to come to him honestly and lay down all, excuse me, the acceptable sins that we often embrace throughout the week. Doing an inventory and getting rid of that junk, and here's the reason why, is because the sermon won't matter if that barrier is still in front of the heart. Well, they're small sins, it doesn't matter. It does matter. Sin, no matter what degree or kind, and that probably has deceived us right there in thinking that they're in those types of categories, but sin, no matter what, has separated us from our Savior. He had to die to restore that. That's the dangers of sin. So when God is calling out to his people, return to me, confess it, admit that you've done wrong, So that what you bring to me from now on will be worth bringing. My fear is that right now our lives are not worth bringing to the Lord. And feeling that helplessness is okay. Because that's the whole reason why we needed to be saved in the first place. Now here's what I like about God. He doesn't give wiggle room. Look at verse 3. Assyria will not save us. Anybody know what that means? Well, I'm not trusting in another nation. No. But you might be trusting in your politician to do something when we should have trusted God to do it in the first place. How about the next one? We will not ride on horses. What in the world does that mean? Sounds strange, doesn't it? You mean I'm not allowed to have any hobbies? No. It's not what it says. Where's your trust? Where's your hope? How about the next part? Nor will we say again, our God, to the works of our hands. You know what it means? That your identity has been wrapped up in your work, not in your Christ. When you introduce yourself to people, how often do you let them know you're a child of God up front? It's usually not where the conversation goes, does it? I would have weird responses. Yes. And you don't know this, but that's what you want. Instead, it's always where you work, how long you've been there. You like it? What's the real issue? 
The real issue is where is our hope? And I tell you this this morning, if you don't take advantage of returning to the Lord and bringing words to him of confessing other things that we have placed our hopes in, then I promise you, you will walk out these doors and you will roll your eyes because you've deemed that God has done nothing at church yet again. And I promise you, the problem is never with him. The problem is never with him. Now, why am I so, I'm not even in my sermon yet. Why am I so fired up about this? Because something I was reading pointed me to this passage last night. And I know it's funny and you guys chuckle at it, but I got saved last night when I read this passage. Because it made me sit down and do an inventory of maybe some sins that I had entertained that I thought were fine. Scoot them under the rug. Who cares? Oh, it's not a big deal. Well, everybody does it. And that is the philosophy of the world. And the philosophy of the world has been written by Satan, not the Savior. So I have to do a heart check with the Lord and say, why am I settling for so much less when you've promised me so much more? But here's the part I love. Look at the end of three. For in you the orphan finds mercy. Do you realize that apart from God, that's what we are? We have no belonging. We have no stay. We have no safety. We have no promise. And the history of Israel should be a blistering warning to us over and over. God does not tolerate sin. He is a God of justice, and he will never crumble on his promises. But he also will not allow for his children to run amok. He is the God that spanks his kids in the middle of Walmart. He has no problem with it. Why? Because he loves us that much to keep us from ourselves. So let's take these few moments and silently bring words to the Lord and return to him if we have walked away, if fellowship has been diminished. And whatever we have put in place of him Cast it to the side, stop hoping in it, and realize that our God is the only God who loves us and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do not leave your children alone, even though in the rebelliousness and the sinfulness of our hearts, we often beg for that. And I'm thankful that you love us beyond our obstinance. And you desire nothing more than a close walk with us. To give us the best because it's what you've promised. And Father, we cannot afford to live life apart from you. Or even at a distance. But we need to be with you always. Father, whatever people or parties, or money, or plans, or schemes that we've put our trust in. Those are idols before you. So, Father, I thank you that you are faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you that you love the orphan. 
Thank you, Father, that you have mercy for the orphan. Father, prepare our hearts as we are in the word today to receive all that you have for us and to further conform us to the image of Christ our Lord. In him alone is life. There is no other name by which we can be saved. Father, we praise you for loving us unconditionally. It is in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 13. Does anyone need a pen this morning? It is. <laughs> if you're new, I apologize for any confusion that we have with uh, where we're going to be. And here's the reason why is we have been in a process. Good hands. Anybody else? Great. We're in a process of looking at what is the point of the Bible. In fact, we've been in this process since I got here a year and a half ago. And the conclusion that we've come to is that Jesus is very concerned about His kingdom. He's very concerned about bringing His righteous rule to earth. When God prepared the way, chose an insignificant and fragile people of which to fawn His love all over, and to have them be His means of proclamation to the world, with their sin hindering the furtherance of that message, he then brings about his son. Promised from thousands of years before him. Thousands of years before him. And in doing so, his son comes proclaiming a message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The promised people of the Jews have rejected him as their savior. In doing so, Jesus is pronouncing an interesting type of teaching against them called parables. And the idea of a parable is, for those who were unreceptive to him, it is a message of judgment because they can't understand what he's talking about. For those who have received him, they're given even greater understanding. And what we left off with was this idea of the wheat and tares. I don't want to rehash all of that. But in order for us to understand what we're going to be dealing with today and how it works and why our explanation of the wheat and tares is a credible biblical one that is consistent, we have to read over the interpretation. So in Matthew 13, if you would look at verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And the field is the world. Does everybody see that? The field is the world. Mark that, because after the end of this year, when we get back into Matthew 13, we're going to pick up with that idea, and that's going to be a significant thing to know. So when I quiz you on it, and threaten you with a pin to the eye if you don't know it, because we got that many pins to throw. But that way everybody would know it, right? It's good. The field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. 
So, now watch this. Just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom, which means that His kingdom will be presently going on at that time. So we're talking about the 1,000-year reign of Christ, okay? He will gather out, they will gather out all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 43. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears... Let him hear. Now often this has been taught in such a way for salvation. How does someone get saved? Well, that's pretty easy. Is You see, the, the whole idea is that by scattering the seed, you're going to have in the church lost people and saved people that are going to be in the church all the time and you can't tell who is who and everybody's looking the same. They all look like sheep. Some of them are wolves. And we start introducing all kinds of stuff. This passage has nothing to do with the church at all. Nothing. In fact, the idea of the church has not even been brought up yet in Jesus' ministry. He's still, he's still dealing with his pronouncement of judgment against the people of Israel because when he revealed himself at a level more heightened than anything had ever seen before, anybody had ever seen before, they denied the Messiah even though he fulfilled everything that had ever been promised about him in that time. All of the signs pointed to him as the promised one, and they still turned away. Or let's say it the way that John says it. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, they've been given the right to be called children of God. To receive Him is to believe Him. The gospel doesn't change. But the heart of the Jews have become calloused with religion. How can we earn it, is the idea. And so here's what we saw, just leading the weeks up to it. There's going to be what's known as a remnant. And that is going to be flesh and blood, living Jewish people, humans, that at the end of the seven-year tribulation, when it seems like hell on earth, when the Antichrist looks like he is going to win, and he has deceived all the nations and following them and gathering in the valley of Megiddo, in the Middle East there, right north of Jerusalem, and battling together, and all the nations of the world, all their soldiers are going to be gathered to fight against Israel, that we're going to see a triumphant scene that takes place. And when the Savior returns, He is going to usher those living beings who survived that tribulation time into the 1,000-year kingdom as human beings. So we need to see all of that, how it's going to play out. So take your Bibles with me and turn to Revelation 19. You may say, well, if we're kind of studying the life of Jesus and walking through it, how come we're moving all of a sudden to the end times? Because I firmly and undoubtedly believe that that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. And it's vital for us to know, because let me say this, if you are not living today with the end in mind, you have been deceived. Too often we live day for day. Well, I'll just take whatever day the day gives me, right? Seize the day. Any carpe diem people out there? Well, here's my humble and loving encouragement to you. Stop it! Live in light 
of the return of the Savior. He promised he would come again, and it is going to happen. And as believers in Christ, who are not able to be ripped away from his loving, secure grip, you and I cannot afford to have our hands in the cookie jar when he comes back. So let's start in chapter 9, verse 1. I'm sorry, 19, verse 1. Forgive me. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. And here's what they're saying. Hallelujah! Salvation! The idea of deliverance and rescue should be understood with this. And glory and power belong to our God. Why? Because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. Let me say something real quick. Jesus came the first time for sin. He came as the Savior the first time. And we're going to talk a great deal about that next Sunday. That was the whole reason for His first coming. But the promise that was given by the angel to Mary was the idea of He will reign forever. He will sit on the throne of His father David. Having been crucified on a cross, buried, resurrected, and then ascended, this is still a as-to-yet-be-fulfilled promise that is waiting. Even in the announcement of His birth, the second coming was in mind. So the first time He comes, He comes to save people for their sins. He dies on the cross. What did John say? Behold the Lamb of God that does what? Takes away the sins of only good people. Of the world, thank you. Notice that. Your sin is not too great for Jesus to save you because He already died for all of it. That's important. But how does He come the second time? He comes the second time to judge. And why is that? Is He full of grace and mercy and is He loving? Yes. Absolutely He is. And I can't think of a greater way for Him to extend that than saying, everybody, believe! There's nothing standing in your way! Accept your unbelief. At this moment right here, what we're seeing, the time of grace, is over. It's come to an end. And now it is time to judge. So notice the... the what do I want to say? I don't know what else to say. Except the bold face type idea. The prominence. There's the word. The prominence... Of him coming to judge. Verse 2, his judgments are true and righteous. He never judges poorly. It's always exact. It's always perfect. And so the administration of his wrath poured out on a sinful, rebellious, unrepentant world is a perfect measure of exactly what they deserve. The justice of God is being satisfied because it is holding true to His Word and the fact that He hates sin. Verse 3, And the second time they said, this is the multitude from verse 1, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. There is going to be praise and worship because judgment has taken place. Now you might say, man, that's kind of brutal. It is. But because God is true, 
Because His Word is true. And because justice is happening exactly according to His truth, there's nothing else to do but to praise God in a situation like that. Why? Because He was right all along. He was always telling the truth about sin all the time. Even though Satan came about and said, Now, did God really say this? Yes, he's the inventor of language. He did say that. Get behind me, Satan. Stop messing me up. They will worship because justice has been exacted. Notice this. And the 24 elders, that's a fun conversation, and the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, small and great. It's a worship service like you don't even know. Hillsong can't even capture it. I don't care. I don't see Justin Bieber in the text either, so I don't know what that's about. But some of you will get that joke. Moving on. Verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sounds of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Now pay attention, church. And His bride has made herself ready. Now let's camp on this for a second. Because there are only two types of people that are here today, saved and unsaved. So those are the two that I want to talk to today. This is the message for the saved. The bride has made herself ready. The rapture of the church is going to happen at any moment. There is nothing left to happen in all of prophecy for it to take place at any moment. You could blink, gone. And I'm not talking Kirk Cameron movie gone. I'm talking like for real, snatched up to meet the Lord in the air. That's what I'm talking about at any moment. This is why you don't want to have your hands in the cookie jar. Because here's the thing. Everybody see there? The marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Let me warn you for this, church. Not every Christian is going to be ready for that time. Let me prove to you this. We're talking about people who have been faithful in their walk with the Lord. Now watch this. Look at the next verse. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. In the Greek, that should actually be better understood as the righteousnesses is the idea. It's the idea of righteous, but pluralized. And what is this? It's talking about our works. Your works now in your Christian life, having become a believer in Christ and awaiting the time of either death or rapture. It is a time of stewardship. Especially in America, none of us are ignorant. Why? Because we've got Bibles rolling out of our ears. I've never seen a place that has so many Bibles, and it blows my mind. 
that when people like Hezbollah want to capture a Christian and behead them because they have Scripture found in their sandals, and here we are allowing our Bibles to gather dust on the covers. That's a scary place to be. We have such an overabundance that we have become fat and lazy about our handling of the Word. When God has already prepared beforehand good works that we should, we don't always do, should walk in them. Why? Because there's going to come a day. And the question that's going to be asked after the rapture is, how did you steward your life in light of the Lord's return? Were you faithful with what I gave you? Only some of the church is going to be ready. And notice, make herself ready. Why? Because they're your works in response to the Word. They are your righteousnesses that are going to merit clothing of which you get to wear special. Fine linen, bright and pure. It seems like when I talk about it in clothing terms, a lot of the women pay attention. Fine linen, bright and pure. Because it is going to represent how we said no to the world and how instead we obeyed the Word while here on this earth. So believers, this is an important time. Notice it says here, verse 9, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this may be controversial, but I'm of the opinion that not all Christians will. Only those who are faithful. He says here, And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship who? God, not angels. Stop looking at your horoscope. Burn that trash. Worship God. He's the one full of promises and hope. He's the one who answers prayer. It's not chance. It's not fate. It's God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What in the world does that mean? Anybody want to take a stab? What does it mean? Research it. Let me know what you find out. It's not the focus of our sermon today. Verse 11. We're not here to do in-depth revelation. We'll do that some other time. Talk to Pete. Pete, what's it mean? Tell me later. All right. Verse 11. (laughs) See, Pete got scared there. I saw the sweat coming out of his forehead. Verse 11. Here it is. And I saw heaven open. Man, if you don't know it, this is a day you're waiting for. You think that it's the day after Christmas? It's not. It's this day. It's not Walmart's running everything 90% off sale. But it's really not 90%, it's only 30%. Seriously, this is the day. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, watch, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. Because diadems, they're crowns. They speak of royalty. They speak of victory. They speak of military conquest. They are what designate him as the only one that is worthy of worship. 
That's the idea going on. This is why John makes mention of it. And notice it's not just, man, he's wearing a big crown. No, he's wearing many crowns. Well, how is that physically possible? He's Jesus. I don't know. But it's going to be amazing. And I think we're going to be so breathtaking by being in his presence. We're not going to care how it works. We just know because of who he is, it does. And it eliminates all questions. Notice, many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. A special designation. He is clothed with a robe that is dipped in blood. And there could be many mentions of what in the world that means. It could be the blood that he shed on the cross is what it's dipped in. It could be the blood of the martyrs that died during the tribulation at that time. I personally think that when he sets down his feet on the Mount of Olives, his robe is going to be filled with blood because of all the destruction he brings against the people who hated him and would not respond to his grace. Does this give you a different picture of God? Just give you a different picture of Jesus. Everybody notice he's not 70's hippie Jesus. It's not Ringo Starr with long hair. He's here to judge and to make war. He's here to deal with the problem. He makes all things right. Notice, his robe is dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Where did we see that? Saw it beforehand, didn't we? And what is that bright, fine, clean linen? What is it? It's our works. And when our works are evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ, it will determine whether or not we receive robes or not, crowns or not, privileges or not, responsibilities or or not, and or not is a possibility for a life that is squandered. There are plenty of people who have a relationship with God. There are few people that are in fellowship with Him. And this is why we stress this. Because the saved need to get saved. And if the saved would get saved, we'd have a lot easier time getting the lost saved. There's a lot of us that respond quite nicely to a message or feel enlightened by a verse. There are few that are willing to take up their cross and follow Jesus and deem Him worthy and more valuable than anything else that this world tries to shove in our face at only a 23.9 interest rate. We are too easily pleased, church. And at this moment, when it's all going to come down to the wire, when it's going to be worth it, the hard time, staying faithful, remaining true, upholding God's Word, adoring Him, waiting on Him to solve a situation instead of charging ourselves into debt, instead of petitioning for a politician to be the difference. Our world is in a scary state, guys. We're dealing with a lot of scary things. Everything is changing except our God, except His Word, except the Gospel. They don't change. Therefore, there is no reason to let go of them. Hold fast. Because when He rips through that sky, when it rolls up like a scroll, and the people of the earth see Christ face to face, and they have no pardon, 
to excuse their rebellion. This is the moment where it's going to matter in eternity. So notice, they're clothed in fine linen, white, clean. They were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Jesus, why do you have a sword in your mouth? I'm glad you asked. With it, he may strike down the nations, the Gentiles, the pagans. How does this settle, man? Jesus is going to return, and when he rips through the clouds, the first thing he is going to do is kill people who deserve it. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? Grace has run out. There will be a time in history when grace stops. Do we realize that sometimes this wanton idea that we have of God and we're kind of hem-hawing on a ship in our Christianity, do we not realize that there comes a time when it's over? It's done! It's time to move on to the next thing. We spent too long caring about ourselves that we didn't care for the lost people around us. I'm so tired of this. Well, we can't say anything. We might get in trouble. Anybody read Acts? Everybody got in trouble in Acts. Why? Because there's no other name, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Because we can't shut up about what we've seen and heard. If we do, we are disobedient. What did Jeremiah said? If I don't tell the message, it's like a fire in my bones. I've got to get it out. I can't hold on to it. Does that resonate at all? If it doesn't, be fearful. It might be a concern to wonder, God, why doesn't your word want to bubble up and bubble over into the people around me? There's something hindering it. It doesn't take a shrink to figure out what it is. It's sin. The problem is sin. At this moment, it's going to matter. Out of his mouth, a sword to strike down the nations. Watch this. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. We see that from Psalm 2. In other words, he'll be exacting perfect judgment and justice. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Everybody know how they pressed out wine back then? How'd they do it? Well, they, they would sometimes do it with a machine, but it's done with what? Feet. Mmm. Anybody here feet people? How many people feet gross them out? Even your own. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you know, don't you? Can you imagine? Notice the picture that's being painted here. Jesus is taking care of unregenerate, lost, refusing to respond to him, even though the message was preached people like grapes in a wine press verse 16 on his robe and on his thigh i don't know if that's a tattoo people ask me that question that's weird like i know he has a name written i know king of kings my temple's decorated and lord of lords he is the King of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. And notice what it says here. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Not on the sun, in the sun. Preacher, what's that mean? I don't know. But man, it's cool. He was standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. Now stop short there. Because he's talking to birds. St. Cracker Barrel. Watch what happens. So that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. Whatever position you attain in life, if you do not believe and you are at this time alive, the birds will feast upon your dead body. That's the idea. When he comes, and get this, the sword that comes out of his mouth, is it a literal sword? You know what? If Jesus wants it to be. But what we know what comes out of his mouth is God's truth, yes? God's truth is going to slay unbelieving people who have rebelled against him. Think about that. So when he speaks, when he returns, that won't be terrifying enough, when he speaks, people will die. And when people on the earth die, an angel is going to call up and say, hey birds, let's clean this up a little bit. It's a gruesome time, is it not? Yet, if you don't know this or not, this is the day you're waiting for. Where's the loving Jesus? Man, He's in there. I hope you see Him. Notice verse 19, And I saw the beast, this is the man of sin, what people often call the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth. Real quick, if you want to write in there, chapter 16, verse 14, if you want to write this in there, the kings of the earth, because you, so you can kind of trace what they're doing if you want. Chapter 16, verse 14, and chapter 17, verse 14. The kings of the earth, 16, 14, 17, 14. That's where you'll find resemblance of this in the rest of the passage. But notice, the beast, the man of sin, he's the one leading the charge, deceiving the nations. The kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Here comes Jesus, and we never thought it would happen, but now he's ripping through the sky, and so we're all going to turn all of our firepower on him because we think we can take him down. Does that seem foolish? Does everybody see how messed up a deceived mind can think? I mean, you rip through the clouds. That should give you something, right? Verse 20, And the beast, man of sin, was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And by the way, in this time of the tribulation, if the person in that time receives the mark of the beast or worships the image, they have rendered themselves unredeemable. They are actually at a point where they cannot be saved at that point. That's pretty amazing. Read Revelation time, it's good. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed by the sword, by the truth that came out of his mouth, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Anybody got a reason for rejoicing right now? Seems gruesome, doesn't it? 
Bible's a bloody book. But this is his return. And what is that? Because he has got to clear the landscape because he's going to set up his kingdom. It's time to stop messing with all this man-made nonsense. And it's time to establish the eternal and the perfect. That's what he's here to do. Verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he, notice the angel, laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now stop. Notice it's not Jesus versus Satan in a pay-per-view royal rumble. No, that's, that's not what's happening here. They are not equals. They do not exist on an equal plane. God is over all. He is the creator. Everything else is a creation. So notice all it takes is an angel to seize him. He can go on and get the job done. God doesn't even need to be involved with it. Snatches him. Casts him away into a bottomless pit. And everybody notice the designation that is given. For how long? thousand years there's your first mention of it mark it verse three and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that here's the reason why he would not now pay attention guys deceive the nations now stop if that is a point in time after seven years of tribulation of which satan is being put away and the reason is is it stops him from deceiving nations what does that tell you that satan's primary business is right now deceiving nations it doesn't take long watching the news to find out that satan is doing a good job at deceiving the nations and how does he do that he has fallen angels demons little g gods that he has placed as controllers and manipulators and in some instances indwellers of national leaders how in the world do you think that hitler ever found it within himself to kill millions of jews tell you what i think that's actually beyond human capacity but however if he was demon controlled demon influenced all of a sudden it becomes drastically clear guys satan hates god he will do whatever it takes to separate us from him he can't destroy that relationship but i tell you what he will get you distracted about your fellowship. In fact, that's one of his greatest modes of operation. Laziness, procrastination. It's not obvious. Read the book of Satan. Draw a pentagram on your wall. He's not doing those things. Get upside down cross bed sheets. He's not doing those things. He's doing it slightly, little at a time so that we don't notice. In fact, isn't that the whole idea of deception? You don't realize how far off the mark you were until you look back and you go, how in the world did that happen? You got deceived. The way it seems right to a man, but in the end it's death. So notice verse 3, he was thrown into the abyss and shut and sealed over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. You say, why in the world must he be released for a short time? Well, let's think about what's going on on earth, why this thousand years is taking place. Look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones. I don't know about you, but I think it's pretty obvious that thrones necessitate a kingdom. Would you agree? Notice this. I saw thrones. And they sat on them. 
And judgment was given to them. And I believe that the they there is speaking of the time when the church, those who were faithful during the church age, will sit on them. In fact, if you look at Matthew 19, 28, chapter 19 of Matthew, verse 28, you find that Jesus actually makes a promise to the 12 disciples. You will sit on 12 thrones in the kingdom, and you will, you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel in the kingdom when this takes place. So it seems pretty reasonable, them being the seedbed for what begins the church of what we're talking about here. Chapter 19, verse 28. He says here, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God. These are the ones that when you read throughout the book of Revelation, you see the souls that are under the altar. You find that those are the ones who during that tribulation time, and they came to faith in Christ, were actually killed for their faith. The designation is made here that the choice of execution during the tribulation by the Antichrist is going to be beheading. That's how it's going to take place. But because of their willingness to hold fast to God's word and the testimony about Christ, they gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. What do they get in return for that? Well, notice this. It says here, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, because they were still deemed savable, and had not received the mark on the forehead or on the hand, and they came to life, they were resurrected at that moment, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. God is so gracious, and Jesus is so loving, that he wants to share his reign with his responsible brothers and sisters. He wants to place that responsible opportunity to serve him in a regal position in your hands in my hands. The problem is, is we have to be deemed faithful so that we can receive it. If we are faithful on earth with little, he will turn around and give us much in this kingdom. So watch how this moves on here. Notice they reign for how long? A thousand years. There's the third mention of it. So far, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. Verse 5, the rest of the dead, and the rest of the dead are those who are unregenerate. Do not know Christ, never accepted the free pardon of salvation. They are lost, is what we would say. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years, there it is again, were completed. This, speaking of what he's talking about with ruling and reigning on thrones and his righteous rule, this is the first resurrection. That's what this is. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. Watch this. And will reign with Him for how long? A thousand years. There it is again. So you believe there's some people who sit here and say, well, the thousand years isn't a literal thousand years. I giggle at that because I'm like, I don't know how much more forthright John could be in writing this out. Verse 7. When the thousand years are completed... Satan will be released from prison. What's been going on during this time? Well, we have evidence from Scripture that there's going to be prolonged human life. What's interesting about that is that if these Jews are the remnant ushered in in their physical lives, they're not killed. They're not changed into glorified beings. They're there as human beings. But Satan has been locked away. A great amount of temptation has been quelled. However, sin does not stop. Why? Because sin resides within a person. Satan just enhances and entices with temptations. So during this time, sin is still going to happen. This is why Jesus 
and a perfect government has to rule with the rod of iron because there are people who are still sinning. However, they're also going to be reproducing. And a thousand years is a long time to reproduce. And so the children of those Jews who are ushered in are going to never have known anything but the righteous rule of Christ perfectly from his throne in Jerusalem. And they're never going to know anything but their own capacity to sin as they feel need to. In other words, they don't know what it is to have Satan baiting them, tempting them, questioning God's word, striving up, stirring up jealousy as he did in Cain. They don't know that. They've never come in contact with it. You're going to have some sons of the kingdom that are going to grow up and are going to be righteous throughout their stay. And you're going to have some that look a lot like them, known as tares or darnel, that are going to grow up at the same time. But it's not until the maturation, until the time when everything is going to come to an end and it's going to count at the end of the kingdom, that those tares are going to make themselves evident. Let's see how that happens. Verse 7, the thousand years, there's the sixth mention, are completed, Satan will be released from prison. And he will come out to do what? Deceive the nations. In fact, isn't that the whole reason why he was put away to begin with? So he would not deceive the nations. Because that's his business. That's what he does. And now that he's out, and people have never known temptation, and massive population explosion has happened amongst this remnant of human beings so that the earth has been filled again with people over a period of a thousand years notice what he does he deceives the nations which are in the four corners of the earth gog and magog there's a lot of interpretations of that but what i believe about that is it's speaking particularly of the northern regions of where they're at probably in russia in particular again i have limited study and knowledge of that but i worked for about two hours last night on it and that's when I got saved. But anyway, was dealing with it at that time. And why is this? To gather them together for war. Now Satan's got his own war he wants to have. And he's gathered people from all the nations who have known nothing but the righteous rule of Christ and has brought them together and he's turned them into a militant mob that is now going to execute rebellion. Notice what it says here. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. That's a lot of deception. Remember, guys, Satan is a master deceiver. All he's got to do is have you look at something that looks like the truth and paint it slightly crooked. How about this? And they came up on a broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. What's the beloved city, guys? Man, you didn't need a PhD to do that. Praise the Lord. You got it right when a lot of PhD guys I read got it wrong. Praise Jesus. So notice here, the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. God will not tolerate rebellion. Not at this time. This is the reign of Christ. In fact, isn't it the whole idea that Jesus must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet as his footstool and then he will turn and present that purified kingdom to the Father? Everybody remember this that we've gone through? If you haven't been here, listen to our past sermons website, gbcportage.com. Okay. Notice what it says. Verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now we read this next section, so I'm not going to. But then after this comes the great white throne judgment. 
If you're here today and you have not believed in Christ and you're going to walk out of here and not believe in Christ and you're going to go home and live a fat and happy life and your own personal pleasure is your own God and you die apart from the pardon that has been freely given to you because Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay for your sin debt before a holy God, then this is where you're going to be. I'm not going to read it. I encourage you to. You know where it's at. But there will be no pardon found amongst someone's works who does not have the pardon that Jesus Christ offers. Your destiny for eternity is a lake of fire. God makes no apologies of that because He's perfect in love and He's perfect in justice. And by giving His own Son the greatest thing that He possesses, and that being a measure of His love, and offering Him to take care of all sin problem. Let's put this in today's terms. All your credit card debt, gone. All your mortgages, gone. Car payments, gone. Student loan debt, praise Jesus, hallelujah, gone. Gone. Wiped out. Free and clear. Done with. And by accepting the payment, nothing but gracious abundance above and beyond what you thought you were getting into. Does everybody see that Satan's got a lot of the world like this? In fact, that's what we're commanded in, in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, to pray for those people. That the blinders that Satan puts on the lost would be removed so they could see the gospel and be saved. Here's a beautiful thing about this. I'm thankful this book doesn't end like this. And interestingly enough, if you turn over to chapter 22, it's got an exhortation for the believer and for the unbeliever. This is where we'll end it. I'm going long. Coffee's still hot. Sunday school teachers are gracious. At least if they talk about me, they don't talk about me to their face, to my face. So, Chapter 22, verse 12. This is for the believer. Behold, I'm coming quickly. That means when I come, it's going to be in a flash. When the series of events starts, it's on. It is a tipping of the first domino and the rest fall. But I want to draw your attention to this word. And my reward. Let me give you this word in Greek. M-I-S-T-H-O-S. Write it down. Don't look at me. You want to know this word. M-I-S-T-H-O-S. Did I say that right? M-I-S-T-H-O-S. Yes, mystos is this word. And here's what it means. It means dues paid for work done. It means wages. He's coming quickly. And he is going to be paying out wages to those believers in Christ who have stewarded their lives well and have invested in the Word and remained faithful. And this Word, what's interesting about it is it means fruit naturally resulting from toils and endeavors. And it can be used also of not only rewards, but also negative assessments. Because Christ will judge perfectly His people. He's coming. He's going to have His reward with Him. And He wants to reward. It fills Him with joy to reward His kids. But I guarantee you this, if you don't deserve a reward, He won't give you one. He has no problems. In fact, we're actually told, 1 Corinthians 3.15, you will experience shame in His sight. Why? 
because I could have lived my life for the Lord and I squandered it. I live for self. I live for pleasure. I let persecution get me away from it. I let money drive my desires. So notice, he has his misthos with him to render to every man according to what he has done. There's the exhortation for the believer. What's your life look like if you were to present it to the Lord right now? But he doesn't stop there. He's got something else for the unbeliever. Look at verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come! And let the one who hears say, Come. I love this verse. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Let the one who desires drink of the water of life freely. Why is that? Because salvation is a free gift. All the work has been done for us by Jesus on the cross dying because you and I can't stop lying to one another. And you and I can't stop coveting other people's things. And you and I can't stop slandering our brothers and sisters behind their backs. Jesus died to take care of all of that. And He offers it freely. If you're here today and you are lost and you so desire to be saved, it's offered without cost. It costs you nothing. It's as simple as John 3.16, right? God loves the world. What's that love look like? He gave His Son. Why did He give His Son? Because whoever believes in Him will not perish, but has eternal life. Man, it doesn't get any better than that. Now, do I have to walk an aisle, pray a prayer? You can. I'm going to be playing drums, so I don't know what I'm going to do to help you. I'll probably call on Chuck to get up here. But if you are somebody who's got more questions about this, or you don't agree with it, I would love to talk to you afterwards. Sound good? Believers, there's only one life and soon it will pass. And only what's done for Christ will last. That's set on your heart. Let's pray. Fathers, we think about the return of Jesus. How this rebellion could possibly take place in the midst of a perfectly governed kingdom a perfect government it testifies to the exceeding sinfulness of my heart to think that christ could be reigning before our eyes and we would still push his hand away father we need you every hour we need you every moment we need you always Maybe we think about this end and our lives have been concluded to be not worth anything. We've done nothing in response to your goodness and grace. It's not because we needed to be accepted, but because we'd want to do it to please you. Pray, Father, we repent of that now. We are here in the hearing of my voice, and we are without Christ. We are without hope in this world. We are alienated from God. That needs to be rectified today and can be simply in believing in Christ. Are we convinced that He is the Savior of the world? 
Are we convinced that He has paid for sin? Father, we have a lot to be thankful for. We have a lot to rejoice in. We have a lot to glorify You in. Thank You, God, for the hope that You provide. Thank You, God, for the goodness that You show. Thank You that You want to work with Your kids. Thank You that You want us to draw near to You always. Thank You, God, that You constantly accept us. Thank You that now is a time of grace. We praise You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen.